0: Hello, Andres. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing your name, right? Um, welcome to the podcast. Um, do you want to quickly uh, like tell people who you are and what you're doing?
1: Yes. So I'm, <clears throat> I'm a lawyer myself. i uh, working for an international organization. I am um, a graduate from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy in the United States and uh, always had an interest for international relations and uh, and, um, and and working with international individuals, so uh, um, th- this is me. No, no, nothing special.
0: So, like I've been reading a bit about how NATO works, um, and also just to give people, you know, uh, an idea, you're in no way in, uh, you know, you're not representing NATO in this podcast, so uh, people are aware about it. Um, But no, it's interesting that your journey started with NATO, like uh, around 2000, if I'm not mistaken. I read your biography. Um, And uh, how has it been? Because I have no idea as to how legal, because I'm not in the lawyer um, environment. But I would love to know the legal proceedings as they happen in in NATO. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Well, uh, first a disclaimer. So I'm I'm speaking here on my own behalf and not on, on behalf of my organization. To your question, yes, I, I, I joined as a civilian uh, in, in year 2000 for the, what we could say, the, uh, the legal court of uh, NATO. But before I was in the army and I was also working uh, for NATO, European Union, and International organizations Union. But <clears throat> the, the, the complexity, and I'm sorry to start with this <laughs> was it advert, the complexity of the legal framework of NATO comes from the fact that uh, in in 1948 when the nations um, realized that um, the Soviets uh, had an intention to expand um, uh, they quickly came together and they decided that they have to be united in order to counter this um, at that moment ideological aggression let's put it that way and as uh, you know history little leaders show that uh, there was an actual um, expansion in order to create what uh, we later call the satellite countries. So, uh, especially it was Benelux, uh, Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands, who uh, are very small countries. They're flat, uh, and they uh, they they were they had fears that uh, that what happened with uh, with uh, Nazi Germany would happen again with the Soviets. So uh, they came together. They signed what they call the Brussels Treaty but they were not satisfied uh, and they brought in uh, the UK and the UK brought in the United States. So um, a series of uh, discussions in Washington and finally they Incorporated France, which came a little bit later I mean, with certain disappointment from the side of the, of, the, uh, of the French representatives, they managed to conclude and signed in 1949, record time for negotiations, uh, a, a treaty. But the treaty, and this is when, when the legal complexities come, the treaty, it is written more like a pledge and not like a, a contract. And it's written very simply, uh, taking into account this is 1949, uh, where uh, the legal uh, texts were a little bit more complex, uh, long paragraphs, this is very short. This have very short sentences, very plain language, and the funny thing is that uh, in the fourteen articles, you could never find the word organization. So uh, what they were creating at the time was an alliance, not an organization. That came immediately after during the um, the first session of the of the council of the Northern Council, where where all the nations are, are discuss and, and make decisions together, and eventually uh, uh, in what the sessions. Uh, uh, in, in one of the papers, they start speaking about organization. But uh, this is 1949. Uh, the, the expansion of the Soviet, uh, uh, of the Soviets, physically and ideologically, was was still being. It was a big thrust, and, uh, and and Europe was seeing this. But uh, it was only uh, uh, when the um, uh, war in Korea broke up is when they really realized that they have to uh, make sense to this word organization that was not in the treaty but was discussed in the first session of the Norentine Council. And uh, this is when uh, uh, the, the council, the nations, the 12 nations together uh, decided to give teeth to the organization and create institutions. The first institution that they created was the uh, Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe. They call... Um, General Eisenhower could not be anyone else because he had in his portfolio all the victorious uh, generals and politicians uh World War II. And uh, that's what they did. They created what today we call shape uh, in order to uh, uh, create interoperability and to uh, increase and improve the, um, the defense part of the organization because the security part is the diplomatic one. So the diplomatic one was dealt by, immediately after Eisenhower was uh, uh, appointed, they uh, appointed a secretary-general. It was a former general, at that time civilian, uh, Sir Ismay, and that way they covered the two areas of NATO, security and defense. But it was not sufficient because the 14 articles uh, didn't have any of the characteristics, typical of any internationalization like privileges and immunities, legal personality, freedom of movement, all these things that you require to be a subject, a subject of law, a subject in this case of international law. So uh, again, very quickly, uh, between 1951 and 1952, they uh, come up with three other uh, uh, treaties, multilateral and one was the, uh, the NATO SOFA, the Status of Forces Agreement. It was for visiting forces. And the other was the Ottawa Agreement, which was related to the missions and the experts. And the other was the Paris Protocol, which was, was related to the international military headquarters. And, and this is how the, the legal framework came up. Of course, uh, the network today of, uh, of agreements is immense. Uh, lately, it's, it's been more fashionable simply because it's more difficult to have a treaty or a convention has been more fashionable, something that you all of you heard, which is the MOUs, Memoranda of Understanding. And this is how NATO legally is, is constructed. If you want to go over more uh, in depth, uh, that is probably more lawyers' language. Uh, the question would be, is this enough as part of the legal framework? <clears throat> and some people will tell you no, because you need to count also of the uh, decisions and the policy and directives uh, that are issued by the plenary, in this case, the council, which actually form, in accordance with the International Law Commission of the United Nations, form the rules of the organization. So all the treaties and all the internal legislation, the the internal legal order of the organization, all together form the rules of the organization. And all of this is part of the international public law by which the organization uh, runs and is ruled. That's
0: it. That's brilliant. Um, so uh, I, I, I learned about the Warsaw Pact. And then on the other hand, there was um, a NATO expansion policy, some sort of a retaliation, um, stating that uh, if any um, European or NATO countries is attacked, nuclear power would be involved. Um, so if I'm not mistaken, there was a retaliation policy. Like that. Um, but when I look at Russia and Ukraine, like the current situation, it, it, it makes me wonder as to you know uh, whether Ukraine should be in a in a NATO in the NATO alliance. If if that's the reason why Russia uh, attacked, which seems to be the case.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let let me um, uh, clarify a little bit the first part. So um, when NATO was created uh, or the North Atlantic Treaty was signed, uh, if uh, for those who who may uh, uh, be hearing this podcast. Uh, I invite you all to uh, to take the, the treaty, go through it, and you will see that uh, the, pro- the the preamble of the uh, of the treaty uh, reminds us uh, that uh, the framework by which it is uh, concluded is the Charter of the United Nations, and later on is mentioned seven times. So, then the Normandy Treaty uh, uh, is. Uh, under the Charter of the United Nations. At the time, uh, was trying to, uh, uh, the the intent was to uh, uh, make the United Nations principles and values work because the Security Council was blocked uh, by Russia or the Soviet Union at the time. And that is why why it is written in a very uh, United Nations fashion. The Warsaw Pact is a reaction to it And uh, the difference between both, and that is why one was successful and the other was not, is because the uh, NATO, uh, the nord Treaty, is signed multilaterally, while the Warsaw Pact was bilateral agreements. So uh, uh, when you have a multilateral treaty, you create um, uh, interesting synergies that are relating to reputation, are related to the uh, uh, um, a creation of um, debtor and debitor uh, um, um, flow, and and that <clears throat> makes the um, the treaty uh, have a continuous momentum, while the momentum of the uh, of the uh, Warsaw Pact was uh, just uh, between two. One of them was hegemon, while in the non-anti Treaty there was no hegemon, even if the United States was big and had all the money and the world the 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 way of making decisions was consensus by science procedure. It was not the case in the Warsaw so Pact. That is why one survives and the other don't, in terms of how what is the level of bindingness and obligation that the parties feel. So with respect to Ukraine, uh, you know, Ukraine had a, after 1991, had a a special status in NATO, and it was the council, the uh, Ukraine-NATO council, uh, where there were uh, many steps being taken in order to uh, um, accommodate and to align the, all the institutions, civilian and military, uh, to the the actual uh, uh, standards that NATO requires. It's a process called map membership action plan It's uh, made of uh, different chapters different means many and they touch everything not only armed forces but also uh, internal institutions even justice uh, agreements that you may have also territorial um, uh, uh, the territorial situation of the of the of the country so a uh, uh, and, and this, what I'm going to say is very opinionative uh, at this moment, I'll just move away a little bit from the facts that uh, um, Ukraine in many of those chapters in the emergency action plan, uh, let's say uh, if we put ourselves in academic terms, he passed. But there were others that didn't. So I know that there are comments out there that, let um, me say, okay, uh, he was about to enter, uh, Maybe yes, maybe not. You never know. I mean, it's very—it's impossible now to say. Okay, yes, surely we'll have passed all the map, uh, all the map chapters. One thing was for sure: the, the 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 Donbass region in the in the east and the question of Crimea was is is one of the chapters that have to be solved. So, um, uh, and then uh, there was an actual alternative, uh, uh, which was being, which being working, which was that of being a partner and, uh, and trying to uh, uh, tick all the boxes of uh, the, um, the chapters of the map. And that's what Ukraine was doing. I, I personally think that uh, if the previous nations ticked all the boxes, and that is how they were admitted uh, into NATO, Ukraine uh, was obliged to do the same. So now it's easy to say, "Oh, it should have been NATO." And then, uh, but you know, you, you have procedures; you have to follow the procedures. <clears throat> that's that's the way it is. Again, personally, i I may think, "Okay, it would be great to have Ukraine," but if uh, if you speak legally, you have to follow the process, and and that's it.
0: Yeah, no, it's very interesting uh, to me um, when I look at. Uh, NATO. What, another question that comes up in my head is because the United uh, States sort of uh, is, you know, this world power as it is, um, and then uh, having like a list of thirty countries uh, and then some alliances. It's um, like when I think about this Russia-Ukraine thing and and seeing that there are, um, you know, there could possibly be NATO deployments uh, on the border, so. I, what what puzzles me is that Russian president actually thinks that even though the world is very liberal right now, and even if um, these countries do join NATO, I don't think there's an actual threat to the security of the country. Um, but it seems that he believes otherwise, and it's probably because of World War II bias that he still has. I mean, that's that's what I'm calculating. Um, but uh, what do you think about like Putin's role in all of this? Because I think it's uh, I think if anything it's his call because um, I don't think Russian people actually wanted on this list
1: I mean you I think you you're right and uh, I, the way i I discuss this uh, uh, of course in an informal matter is that the analysis here Um, you know I'm, I''m I'm by by education not only a lawyer but also uh, an international relations expert oh, okay probably expert is too much but uh And and also I give uh, classes on foreign policy analysis. And um, you know, one of the things that I tell my students is that um, guys, uh, you always have to look at the personality of those making decisions. I know sometimes it's hard. If you work for an organization, a public organization, you might have intel that might help you. But today, most of the time you can get the personality of the individuals out of uh, YouTube uh, videos interviews or interviews in, in newspapers. And you can really get a grasp by being a little bit, I mean, probably an amateur psychologist and, and an, an amateur sociologist. And just being an observer of life, you, you might you might see the traits of, of, of individuals. I think uh, the way to start looking at the, uh, the current uh, war in Ukraine is uh, analyzing the, the character uh, uh, Putin, and there are a couple of things I may not tell you everything because uh, simply I might I might probably fail <laughs> taking into account all the elements. But a couple of them would be uh, all his uh, um, family background. He, he was basically a, a let's say a, a, a banlieue uh, guy. Um, was a bully. He was bullied. He says many times that uh, thanks to uh, to judo. He find himself, and he was able to uh, do something of his life, and uh, so which means that uh, this is like in the movies. So uh, a bad boy suddenly finds uh, something that inspires him and makes him a, a good man, and uh, uh, and he also uh, said, I, I remember it was in the uh, in the Oliver Stone uh, um, interview where he said, oh, and then when I when I when I was at school and I was watching movies da, 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 and then he said, I, w- I want to be a spy. So, and then uh, he, ended, uh, he entered the KGB. He, again, he was a good uh, sport man and surely very bully. So he, he was, the, he was the, the type of character that this guys were <laughs> looking for. He speaks many languages too, and he's good at speaking languages. So, uh, 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 and then uh, what it made them get out from the mud, suddenly disappears in 1991. And he takes it very badly. And probably he didn't think of rebuilding it at the time, but as circumstances put in, in different positions of power, and when uh, when uh, Boris Yeltsin just uh, appointed him as, as prime minister, I think is, uh, first was KGB. KGB uh, director, and I, I think it's when he said, "Oh, this is this is the right time. God put me here to uh, to uh, to fix where was am fixed." And uh, and 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 he probably considers himself commissioned by divinity, uh, most likely. And uh, and that is uh, how I think we have to study the situation. Second point for keeping Stalin situation, he's 70, 71. How long he's going to last more, okay. 14, 20. I mean, he wants to have a big Russia and uh, emulating the USSR has to start now. And for the woman he's not been very successful. I don't mean in Ukraine, in other parts. So um, the thing is Putin is confronting now societies that have tasted freedom, probably in very little doses, but they have tasted it and they like it. And, uh, and I think what he has found in Ukraine is this, not the former uh, cousins in Ukraine. He's finding now people who like freedom and they're ready to fight for it. And this is where he definitely miscalculated. Uh, and I think those two analyses on where he's coming from and, the, and his <clears throat> position in his vital uh, experience uh, and is, are very two, not the unique for sure, but two good elements to see why we are where we are today.
0: Yeah, it's definitely very interesting as to how things unfold. Um, to me, um, when I think about even the Afghanistan issue, which was happening, a couple, I mean, it's still going on, uh, it's been happening. Um, I, I see that a lot of um, organizations uh, did not help them in the sense that like, y- even though U- United Nations uh, condemned the whole thing, and there was all sorts of, um, you know, uh, what, what do I even, what do I even say? Um, it, there was some sort of um, uh, help being sent by the rest of the world. Um, uh, t- like uh, when it comes to Russia, um, and I see that there are definitely people in that country who don't want any of this. Um, I, I think about what what is the government structure for, you know, Russia and like how do elections happen there? And uh, for some reason, like it comes to my head that if Putin has been in power for, 20 years or so, um, it's likely that he will stay in power because of his influence. But what is the influence is what confuses me so much. Mm
1: -hmm. I I think uh, um, if there was any conduit for social participation in, in politics, as we do in the in the democratic liberal democracies and in Europe, in Asia, in, in America, uh, uh, Putin has been successful in in in, um, in closing down. So I don't think uh, the Russians have any opportunity now to uh, to uh, have their voices heard, because all those uh, means have been either controlled or switched off by Putin's regime in 22 years is a lot of a lot of time. So. Uh, and I think this is the situation we are confronting, and, and, and I'm sure it is, it's very. Diff- Again, 20 years ago, we, the Russians didn't even have WhatsApp, for sure they didn't even have Telegram. But they do Telegram today. They do have Telegram, and it's very difficult to uh, to switch off the passerelles that move info um, from um, the Western uh, and uh, the rest of the world into Telegram, like Telegram does with us. I mean. Uh, people can download all the books in the world through Telegram, not paying. Basically, they are killing the economy of the publishers. But it happens also all the way, the other way. And uh, the society, okay, sure, little by little is learning what is happening in Ukraine. They're also learning because uh, uh, if 90%, as the um, sources say, of the the, uh, um, uh, land forces are now engaged in uh, in Ukraine. Those soldiers, they have families. They have uh, wives, they have children, they have parents. So um, they know uh, they are not at home. And uh, they know that they are soldiers, so they can easily imagine that they are in Ukraine. So and if they are hearing what they're hearing, so that creates the unrest. Maybe not all the people, but some of them surely do. And uh, let me give you an, an anecdote that is now running uh, the uh, the different press agencies, and now it's already out. It is, um, I mean, it's so much the fear of Putin and and his um, and uh, his friends uh, to avoid or to contend the internal front that uh, uh, reportedly the Russian army is carrying uh, a crematorium, mobile crematorium uh, with the troops and is also seizing the crematorium of the cemeteries in order to burn the, uh, the bodies of uh, the Russian soldiers. This way he avoids what we, our countries, when we go out in mission, whatever that might be, uh, uh, normally mandated by the United Nations, you have all these coffins coming back with the, uh, with, uh, the national flags and that causing an effect in the in the population in the public opinion so this is not going to happen in russia because as i'm telling you reportedly uh, the courses are not going back to russia and that is very very sad because it's something hurts the most is when you cannot take care of um, of the bodies of your loved ones and uh, and just think that uh, still may be alive I still may not and, uh, and this is this is very sad, but this is this is how Putin and Putin's uh, regime uh, uh, manages this type of situations.
0: Yeah, it's all it's all very sneaky um, the way Putin has been uh, running everything. Um, uh, kind of wanting to drift from the NATO conversation a bit. Um, are are you into philosophy, Jewish philosophy at all? Um, Yes yes. Yeah I, was, yeah, I do. I was just reading about Baruch Spinoza's uh, intellectual love of God. Um and it's it's such a such a very interesting uh concept. What kind of uh like what thinkers do you have in mind for uh, when it comes to Jewish philosophy like
1: <laughs> when it comes to Jewish philosophy I think uh, I'm very much in uh, uh, <clears throat> you know it depends on what you want it uh, depends on the mood. <laughs> but, I think uh, Emmanuel Levinas is amazing. Uh, Martin Buber is uh, is is also very impressive and uh, it, they're different. They 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 have connections, but they're different. I think uh, uh if you want to get into uh the mystics you need to um uh, it, it is difficult and uh, um I mean uh you have to be careful sometimes because if you say something you might probably be labeled but okay let's put it this way Levinas and uh, um, Buber and uh, if you put me this is like contemporary I think Spinoza is the one who inaugurated uh, the the free thinking and uh, and previous to that uh, you have of course uh, Rambam, uh, Maimonides I think uh, if he had not written the 13 uh, points, he would have probably been killed. So, <laughs> because the uh, the uh, guide of uh, perplex is is uh, is an amazing way of approaching God under the um, the reason, and I don't think uh, you asked me today. Uh, um, uh, you know, Levinas says something. Very simple, which says that um, uh, Judaism is a religion for adults, and um, and because it's a religion for adults, uh, it, it is enormously challenging, because you cannot find a cozy place, comfortable place, uh, where you can sit down and believe. Uh, in, um, in, the, in the Disney world and be happy. Yeah, it is your choices, your choices, okay. No one, no one has to be blamed for that. But in Judaism, they don't ask you this. They put you always on your toes and, uh, and also outside of your comfort zone. It's basically, and I said, I said Abraham many times, is as moving from one oasis to another oasis and spending most of your life in the desert. And rarely you find an oasis, and when you find it, you need to move uh, to the next one because it's a continuous challenge. And uh, and with surely the conclusion uh, always being uncertain, with the only certainty of the eternity. And if the eternity is not touchable, it's still uncomfortable. So uh, and then you have to uh, look into the eternity turn your head and look at your human fellows, and work with your human fellows, because in the end of the day, this is what you got, material. And everybody uh, and gets completely uncomfortable. And some people prefer to live comfortable, and others decide to be uncomfortable. I prefer to be uncomfortable. <laughs>
0: No, that's that's amazing. Um, uh, I was uh, re- I was reading about this obscure or Jewish philosopher. His name is uh, Solomon Maimon. Um, I, apparently, he was also a part of the German idealist uh, philosophy. Ah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And uh, he was he yeah. was, was countering. He was very much criticized because was he was dismounting. I don't remember. He was dismantling another fear and everybody was like, oh, you're not. and suddenly the, the guy is amazing. Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, you no. Know, I, I, I was reading about him and um, it, it, uh, like I read that Immanuel Kant, when he came out with his critique of pure reason in 1781, um, he uh, apparently the first person to understand the entire book was Solomon Maimon. That's how I got introduced to him. So now I'm like, you know, kind of like looking at all of his philosophical stuff and it's brilliant Jewish philosophy. Um, and uh, I also think about Kabbalah sometimes as to like, if I can try to have like my finger around the concert because again, it's, it's a very confusing to me. Um, but have you ever, what do you think about Jewish mysticism and like Kabbalah and all of these things? <clears throat>
1: This is my second year studying Jewish um, uh, mysticism, and I, I must say that uh, I, um, it, it is complementary to philosophy. I've, I don't think that you actually can uh, uh, live without. I mean, not not entering, not opening the door and getting into that that room, even just to to take a look at it. If you don't do so, you're missing something because definitely was a period where mysticism uh, um, uh, had a place. It always had a place, of course, but at the time, that was probably trying to explain some of the difficulties of um, of the Jewish thinking as a religion and later as a philosophy. And uh, there is an amazing, let me give you an example. And, and and uh, uh, the example is uh, all the issues related to angels. You know, so if you speak about angels, people most probably think you're completely crazy. <laughs> so, uh, but if you uh, do a proper study, a, a reasonable study of of, uh, of angelology in, in in the Tanakh and later in the tradition, especially on the on the on the, on the Pentateuch, on the Torah. Uh, it's an impressive, you can quickly come up with what uh, Emma Tauf calls the um, the angel administration. So they, the sovereign kingdom of God has uh, civil servants or functionaires, and those are the angels. And they have different categories and, uh, and different ranks, and, and they are the ones that uh, um, do the administration of the divine for the humans. And if you see it that way, and probably this is a very simplistic way to explain it, maybe you can understand many things, and uh, and you maybe can explain many others, and you maybe can explain something as stupid as uh, as probably homosexuality. And people do. How come? Well, I have examples where you can you can explain this through the Tanakh, and of course, as always, based on how we Jewish people uh, uh, look at text uh, in uh, uh, with hermeneutical eyes. Unavoidable i don't think no one can take off uh, our spectacle hernetical spectacles and whatever text you're going to read, even if it is Don Quixote you're going to do an interpretation of it and you're going to contextualize it to today unavoidably <laughs> but uh yes uh, to your question just yes, uh, mysticism is 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 a is a must to complement uh, 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 the rest of the uh, knowledge that is uh, written uh, out
0: there. Oh, I've always had a thing for mysticism. Uh, I feel like um, whenever we talk about like any, any philosophy or any kind of um, subject uh, that you take up in your life, at some point or the other, um, you definitely either become the mystic or you want to become the mystic or you are the mystic. Um, and And this is again in a very poetic uh, poetic sense that um, at one point in life, a human being who is curious about the world and who is also curious about a lot of subjects other than the world, um, you know, ultimately kind of becomes this mystic uh, in, in search of the truth. Now, this truth could be found via religion, it could be found via spirituality. But uh, it seems to me that mysticism is, you know, somewhere between spirituality and uh, and religion. Um, what do you think about spirituality?
1: <laughs> yeah, the spiritualism, I think, is the subjective part of uh, what you don't see. And it's always very, as I said, very subjective. Uh, all of us have a perception of, um, the beyond, the divine, the um, unknown, in a very different manner. The truth is that when you talk to each other, you probably may end up grasping that it's something similar, but in the end of the day, you will never know. So you have to accept that uh, even if we both may consider ourselves as spiritual, our way of seeing it spiritually might be different, which is not bad. It is, uh, the difficulty is on how do I transfer this to you? I cannot transfer you my spirituality, and you cannot transfer yours to me, but we can transfer our experiences, the way we feel that spirituality, the way we experience it, the way we turn it into something material, into actions, you know? The famous... Uh, um, um ve theh so this is we will hear and we will do and uh and and you always Judaism is always about doing things and uh and and that is why spirituality sometimes is um sometimes is a little bit um hidden. but it, and 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 um you go to the Talmud and you see all the things that people have to do and uh how to do it, and all the flexibility. Even I'm sorry to say, but if all the orthodox Jews, they are fixed in the um, in Sulchan and they forget that over the years the the Chajamin, all the uh, the sages, they've been they've been being very progressive and and trying to contextualize contextualize the law to the um, to the to the current uh, to the times. So uh, uh, the, the funny thing is, you might feel that it's not a spirituality in it. However, it is a lot. The fact that uh, the Hajamin allowed a widow to marry, even in a very difficult circumstances that in accordance with the law, we could, it was simply because they were so much love for human beings and uh, is that uh, they, um, they permitted to breach the law in order to have the woman, um, the possibility of having property and of course survive. Otherwise, it would not have survived. It would have been become a poor, and a poor at the, at that time was nothing. So um, this is just an example from the old times and that affects women, but also the foreigners. When when we all are so worried about the migrants and all this stuff, the Judaism already have uh, laws in order to uh, to um, take care of the uh, of the strangers, and uh, and the orphans. Which was, the say, the, the typical, the, the archetypes at the time, but there was a big, a big part of humanity, which was as the reflect of the spirituality of the way of tzaddel and Elohim. Um, so, if all of us are made at the same image as God, we all deserved uh, uh, to be treated as we would treat God, because we are all uh, a mirror of it, of 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 God. I don't want to say him or she because I'm I'm always in this non non nominational whatever uh, uh, um, uh, path, but um, spirituality again very subjective. But uh, uh, it has to have a manifestation in in daily life. Otherwise, you become an asset. Then you go to the mountain, you don't do anything, and in the end of the day, it might be useful for you, but that is very selfish.
0: <laughs> very true. Um- so yeah, one last thing. I was thinking about um, how uh, when we talk about um, uh, praying to God or you know rejoicing God, um, Psalm twenty three always pops in my head. Like the Lord is my shepherd, um, and I think that that particular Psalm, like so, some of the like other ones, um, is is more spiritual than it is religious. Because it seems to me that certain uh, sects of um of of Bible of Torah of like any uh, you know pick up any religious um, book can be, it can very much be mystic and can very much be spiritual, um, and and be able to you know touch those parts of you that uh, you've not uh, knocked on. But uh, yeah, to me, uh, there are certain you know uh, psalms and certain uh, prayers that I will just pick up and, and be like, this is this has a lot of spiritual impact. Um, are there any for you? Like, do, do you uh, think about any particular psalm?
1: <laughs> no, I, th- I think there uh, there are many, and uh, and I already picked up mine. But uh, let me tell you that. Um, the uh, it's not the same as Salma with music and without. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, you are not going to grasp the meaning uh, of it, it's simply that it's going to enter easily and you are it's going to uh, uh, make flourish your deeper feelings of. Um, Uh, love and uh, gratefulness uh, easily when you have a a melody. Again, I have many and it probably depends on the mood, but someone that no matter what uh, uh, always moves me is, and it's simply because uh, most of the time you are in need of help. And um, sometimes you don't find it in yourself or you don't find it in the others. Or simply, you don't want to ask the others, not to bother them. And it's the uh, one, the um, uh, the the song of the uh, of the hate. I think is said the translation into English. This chile Malot, no. And uh, in that, uh, which is uh, Psalm 121:51, I don't remember, but uh, it is the one chile malo. And this is the one that is 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 saying. Uh, I cannot. I need help, and I and I look at up in the mountains, and um, and then I find it. I find that it's come. It's coming from God. That help, and he keeps telling uh, how he feels that this help, and and uh, and I think it's most of the time we human beings feel a little bit orphans, and uh, and that is why uh, you need to. Uh, Call upon something else, and um, I remember when my when my father passed, uh, which is just very few months ago, uh, he just stopped breathing. I was in the room, and the first thing that I did is just I put yeah, the, the the mobile phone on the pillow. I put my my, health, my head in the pillow, and I played a song, uh, which because I felt myself orphan at that moment, and. Um, and again i remember this in a very moving manner but yes
0: no it's 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 very beautiful um so thank you uh, a lot for doing this um really appreciate it mm
1: mm-hmm. you're welcome you think